Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. During the last several months, people have been having to deal with a brand new reality. What's life going to look like when we have to deal with coronavirus for the next year or so? And how has that caused additional stress for people who may already have been struggling and now have to deal with a whole new element of change in their daily routine and their work life and in all of society? This can cause a lot of stress for folks. And September is National Suicide Prevention Month, so we are going to talk some more today about what are some of the mental health concerns that people have expressed during this time of coronavirus, and what are some of the signs or symptoms that might suggest someone's struggling and needs some extra professional help, and most importantly, what can we do to help everybody through this? So I'm happy to be joined today by Dr. Mason Turner. He is from Kaiser Permanente and an excellent psychiatrist who's going to work with us today on recognizing those signs and symptoms and what are some of the challenges that are happening in the world of medicine these days directly related to the coronavirus and everybody's stress in handling that. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Turner. Thanks for having me. Now, I know that this whole pandemic has caused a lot of disruption in people's daily lives, whether it be no longer being employed or having loved ones who are sick or having to take care of everyone else who's sick for frontline workers. There's a lot of stress and anxiety that people are experiencing because, as noted by the name, it's a novel coronavirus. This is new. We're not used to this. This is an unusual circumstance. What sort of things have you been seeing in the people that you help take care of that seem to be a little bit worse now that we're dealing with a pandemic? Yes, well, certainly we've seen an increase in the needs of of people to receive mental health care, uh, whether it's general wellness approaches that they need to engage in more self-care or they actually uh, need treatment for underlying uh, mental health conditions or even nuanced mental health conditions that might have come up. I would say uh, in terms of what we're seeing uh, among patients uh, here today around the coronavirus issues, it really kind of falls into a couple of buckets. And I always like to start off by telling people that if you've had a loved one who's been you know, infected by coronavirus and has been sick or has even died from the virus, that is definitely going to have a, a huge mental health impact. And so first of all, there are people who are directly affected by the virus that obviously have to deal with issues of grief and mortality and worry about getting the virus and those kinds of things. And we're seeing some of those people come in uh, just who need extra support because they've been directly impacted by the coronavirus. But fortunately for most of us, we have not been directly impacted by coronavirus, but we've been indirectly impacted, every single one of us, in some way or another. And when we think about what those indirect impacts are, they really kind of fall into a couple of buckets. One of them is really this idea of physical distancing and how we've had to be separate from other people, or we've had to connect via Zoom or via you know, video virtual chats and those kinds of things. As human beings, um, the social interaction that we have is very crucial for our well-being. And so what ends up happening when we have that physical distance between people, that can have an impact, particularly over the long term. And I think uh, many of us can kind of resonate with that, uh, whether it's myself or other people out in the community. In terms of really being physically distanced from people, that does impact our our mental health and well-being as well. And then, of course, on top of that, uh, we have the isolation brings with it uh, inability to exercise or get outside as much or go to the shopping or to the store, restaurants, things of that nature. And so people have tended to be much more isolated during this period of time. 
And I think that also uh, creates issues in terms of increasing depression and anxiety because we don't have those usual outlets to actually manage those kinds of conditions. So I think we're seeing people come in with new onset conditions, and we're also seeing people whose conditions have been reasonably well controlled coming in with more symptoms and really needing more care and support during this period of time. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned physical distancing because the terminology that we've all used is sort of a misnomer. We've all said social distancing, and in fact, that's that's a way to describe it, but it may not be the best way because really we're talking about literally six feet away from someone. That's a physical distance marker. You really hit uh, on a very important highlighted area where we, we need to consider social isolation and the fact that, you know, some of the senior care homes, people are not allowed to have visitors. They have to stay in their room. They're not allowed to interact even with other residents. And that causes a lot of stress and isolation. And it really can exacerbate pre-existing mental health issues because you're no longer allowed to do the very thing that helped you through it. And you mentioned exercise and certainly going to parties and for some people shopping and restaurants and movies and ways that they can get together and enjoy spending time with friends. I'm curious, you know, I've become a a novice. My very first Zoom call, I think I hung up in frustration. And now I'm like, oh, gallery view? Love it. Oh, let's go ahead and go in breakout rooms. I've gotten pretty good at it. But it's taken me a long time. And I wonder if the very concept of Just, you know, when people talk on the phone, it's a little different than that visual interaction. Do you find that the ability to use some of the portals that allow that video face-to-face interaction tend to be helping a little bit? I do. And I think that anytime we can connect, you know, body, facial expressions, the way someone looks that's familiar to us, or at least we can read their facial expressions if we don't know them. I think when you pair that with the voice that we hear, that obviously is going to give us more feelings of connectedness to that person. Um, The telephone is great as well, especially for people who don't really like to use technology or haven't learned how to use technology. The phone is a a reasonable substitute. But I think you're right. Uh, Seeing a person's face on a screen and being able to read their facial expressions and all of those nonverbal cues that we rely on for social interactions, that is very important. And I think when we can do that, that's definitely the best way to go about it. Well, I'm curious if in your interactions with patients, one of the unique specialties that I think has the adaptability to using telemedicine is is psychiatry and psychology and some of the other areas where sometimes it doesn't require listening to a heart or listening to lungs. And there's a lot of physical cues that might be able to be identified using a video format or even just for patients who say, I don't want to go and be seen in a waiting room. I mean, they, they can even do that from the privacy of their own home. So I'm wondering, has that also helped to allow patients to have that new format to be able to interact with providers that maybe they wouldn't necessarily even feel comfortable seeing or if they did feel comfortable would have to go to an office and you know take time off of work park their car find the office location has telemedicine made your job easier or has it made it a little more difficult so that's a really fascinating question uh, because I think it's done both in some ways. And I, at this point in time, after having done this virtual care uh, pretty much exclusively for several months now, I feel like I've gotten through some of the technological issues we faced initially in trying to really adapt to a new system of care. I now I'm really finding that it actually has helped me to reach my patients better in some ways. And there are lots of reasons for that. And I think if you look at the the national trends in telehealth and virtual care, many of these issues have been shown, uh, even in some research studies, even fairly recently, 
patients are actually able to access telehealth and video appointments in a way that they don't access in person because they don't have to drive in. They can maybe take the call from work and go into a private space at work where they can actually speak to their provider. And I'm actually finding that I'm able to connect with more of my patients than I was ordinarily uh, doing. So I think that actually in that way, access to care has improved somewhat because, again, they've got more options. Now, having said that, there are, um, you know, there's a, a significant minority of patients who really can't connect with their providers via telehealth. And so we have to really think about how to meet their needs. But I do think that probably the majority of patients really have found that the telehealth options have been really helpful. I would also add that one of the things about telehealth that I really like is that there's a little bit of anonymity that comes with that, and the patients can feel more um, secure and more comfortable sharing very personal and detailed information that they may not share with somebody in a face-to-face -face encounter. And because of the nature of the work that we do, um, there's unfortunately a lot of stigma attached to mental health conditions still. And patients bring that into the office with them sometimes, especially in that initial encounter with a provider. Telehealth gives them just a little bit more distance where maybe they're a little more comfortable sharing what's actually going on for them than they may in, in traditional offices and encounter. And so I am seeing some of that as well. I find patients are really opening up to me more in some cases. Uh, so while we've had to adapt, I think we're adapting in the right direction. And I think that we really have, uh, we're understanding much more about how we provide telehealth services to patients with mental health conditions. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. I'm talking with Dr. Mason Turner from Kaiser Permanente. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the troublesome signs that people might have been experiencing and how can we address those if we recognize them in ourselves or in someone we love. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Mason Turner from Kaiser Permanente on the line. And we're talking today about what are some of the signs and symptoms of mental health issues that can get exacerbated significantly when we're adding on top of that the stress of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, right before the break, we were talking about the uniqueness, the challenges, and some of the opportunities with using telemedicine as a platform to interact with patients one of the things I'd be curious about is earlier in the show, you mentioned that depression and anxiety seem to be very prominent in a lot of the folks that you're seeing as a result either of a variety of different aspects of the pandemic, isolation, not being able to do their usual stress-reducing activities. When does it become a symptom that can be managed versus a sign of maybe needing medication or needing more intensive treatment for that condition? Yes, that's a great question because I think we all have you know, friends and family members who are suffering uh, right now and trying to understand uh, when to recommend uh, someone get professional help or, or how to be helpful in those cases is very important. And I'll say, first of all, from a perspective of a psychiatrist, I can say that what we're really looking for in terms of uh, issues that need to be addressed, uh, you know, by medications, by intensive psychotherapy, uh, rather than just say a usual self-care approaches, I'm really looking for symptoms that go on you know, most of the day, every day for a week or two weeks or something along those lines. Um, you know, precipitous uh, functional decline where someone can't get out of bed or 
if they are working, they're not able to actually do their, their usual work or function in their relationship and those kinds of things. That really is what I'm looking for as a physician when I'm trying to figure out what best to recommend uh, to the patient. So I think those are some of the, the basic signs people can look for. I think all of us have experienced kind of these brief periods of sadness or anxiety that we kind of can snap ourselves out of by taking a walk or going for a run or things of that nature. And that's really the appropriate way to address those. But when they become more intensive and they're accompanied by some of these different functional issues that we may see, that's when really I think people need to reach out and get some help. And in that situation, what should they do? Should they call their primary care provider? Should they contact, you know, their insurance? Or what do you see that people, how do people come to you? Do they self-refer? Do they get sent to you? What would be the step if somebody out there listening said, yeah, I think I need to do something? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, you want to understand um, how to access care, right? So if you're covered uh, by Kaiser Permanente, for example, uh, you can access mental health services with no referral through your primary care doctor. You can just call and schedule an appointment. Uh, and many insurance companies are like that as well, where you really can just have direct access to a mental health provider. Uh, and each insurance company will be a little bit different. Some patients may choose to actually uh, avail themselves of certain uh, Internet um, therapy services and that kind of thing. So there are a variety of different ways to actually access care. But I think oftentimes for many people, it's contacting, you know, their primary care provider, possibly their insurance company, to understand how they access those services. I think that's a very frequent way to go about it. Uh, the main thing is that, uh, especially when it comes to treatment of uh, de conditions like depression and anxiety, many primary care providers actually provide that care for patients, and that's a great place to start, and they can help you figure out where to go. Well, and you brought up a really good point earlier, which is the stigma. And in fact, there is still a stigma with mental health services. And I agree with you. I wish there wasn't because, you know, a lot of folks just need uh, some extra help or some just some understanding or even just to have their own self-knowledge to recognize that they're not alone with their symptoms. There's a lot of other people who might be experiencing similar things and that there's a definite role for seeking some help from a professional. So in those sorts of situations, if you if you started to have symptoms that were very upsetting to the point where you were considering harming yourself, what what would be the first thing that you should do? And are there resources out there that can help people if they find themselves in that situation? Yes, it's also a really a great question uh, for your listeners to understand kind of what to do in that circumstance is really important because that is a sign that things are really beginning to get um, more out of control or more difficult to manage for that person. And I think if you're the person who's experiencing those suicidal thoughts and you're beginning to think about potentially harming yourself, that is a real sign that your body and your brain are telling you that you need some help. And there are a variety of ways to reach out for help. Um, there's a, a national suicide prevention hotline that's really, I think, that's a great hotline to, to know about and to be able to access if you're running into problems as well. The state of Hawaii also has a crisis line as well um, that's available 24-7. And so sometimes actually reaching out to those, uh, those particular kinds of hotlines and those lifelines really can be helpful in trying to sort out really what, how you approach this, how you think about those suicidal thoughts, and what you need to do to address them. So I think that's if you're the person experiencing those suicidal thoughts, that's a that's a really good start. Or of course, you can also access healthcare. Go to your primary care doctor, get a referral, go to see a therapist, um, go to see a psychiatrist if you need to do that to really help to understand the problem. But oftentimes, like in the moment, uh, you do have these access to these hotlines, or in, in severe cases, the emergency room as well, of course, and 911. 
Now, if you're a family member or your friend and someone starts to talk to you about suicidal thoughts, it's very, very important that the first thing you do with that person is you listen. You allow them to talk and tell you what's going on. Many of us can uh, have this urge or impulse to try to uh, move to a solution immediately and try to tell the person who comes to us with suicidal that here's what you need to do. You need to call this hotline. You need to call your doctor. You need to do these things. Oftentimes what that person wants is they want a listener to hear what's going on for them and to process what may be a new symptom that they've never had before and may be very, very frightening for them. So I think it's very important if you're the one who's getting that information from someone, listen before you kind of move to the next steps, which we can certainly talk about as well. That's a really good point because I think I'm, I know I'm guilty of somebody says, hey, I have a problem. And I'm like, oh, here's all your solutions, one, two, and three. And, I mean, I think we do that in the office during the day, whether or not you're treating high blood pressure, you're treating other medical conditions. You have a tendency to say, I can fix it and here's how. When, in fact, way back when in medical school they taught us, they taught us that 80 to 90% of a diagnosis can be done in the history by just sitting there and listening to the patient. And I think even in our personal lives, sometimes that that skill of being a good listener is often overlooked. So the first step is just listen to what they have to say. And if you find that that person truly is in danger of harming themselves, you mentioned earlier one of the options is to, you know, call 911, is get some serious help for them because you certainly would never want to say, I wish I had done it and have something untoward happen that that person was more serious than you thought. So if somebody, you know, if somebody says they'll go see a psychologist or psychiatrist or their primary care provider or someone to help them, following up and giving them a call the next day, see, did you do it? Is this something that, you know, you were serious about and how can I help you? That's really a key. And I think it's a, it's something that bears repeating because, It's not often our first knee-jerk reaction. We want to take action and do something versus step back and listen. Once you've started with the listening, what are some of the other steps that can help somebody who maybe is just, this is their friend or their loved one who has expressed serious suicidal thoughts? After listening, what's next? Yes, I think as part of listening and understanding what's going on for the person, it's also important to emphasize that talking about suicide with someone who is suicidal does not increase the chances that they're going to actually act on those thoughts. And I think for some people, they think, well, I don't want to talk about this because if I talk about it, I'm going to give them ideas and maybe they're going to act on it in some ways. But what we do know is we know that actually those thoughts and feelings are there regardless of whether the person's talking about them or not. And in fact, sharing that information with another person who is empathic and compassionate uh, goes a long way towards actually that person getting help. So first of all, if you're the person that's receiving the information, just remember that you can talk about it, ask questions, try to understand where it's coming from, because that will allow you to kind of help that person even more. And then I always recommend, once you've been a good listener, once you've heard the information, once you've been able to kind of understand what's going on, the first question should always be, what can I do to help? And allow that person to say, you know what, I've been sitting on the number for this therapist for like three weeks. I've been wanting to call this person. I just can't pick up the phone. Can you come over tomorrow at 1 o'clock so we can call the therapist together and make that appointment? Or they may say, I'm telling you because I don't think I can be safe, and I need you to call 911 and have the ambulance come pick me up. So I think those are the kinds of things that you want to find out where is that person in that moment, and how do they feel like you can help them. So that's really kind of my first piece of advice when you, you get this information. Um, it's always a good idea to encourage them to get help, um, to reemphasize that over and over and over again. 
even to the point of saying, you know, is there something that I can do to help you get help? You know, um, can I research some therapists for you? Can I um, get on a conference call with you to your insurance company so I can kind of get this information and help you uh, sort that out? Many times when people are suffering with depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts, they really can't figure out how to get from point A to point B. So something as complicated as trying to access care for many people can actually be just overwhelmingly difficult in those moments. So as a friend or family member, you may have a role to help them with that. And of course, they've got to be involved in, in making those appointments, uh, and they've got to be you know, willing to consent to it and all the rest of it. But sometimes just being there to hold them accountable to that and helping them to get on a conference call or something like that can be really, really useful. That's another way, very practical way that you can be helpful. Excellent advice. I'm and back. I think you did. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come right back. I want to review those thoughts that you mentioned just in just a moment. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Mason Turner. And when we come back, we're going to go over the steps that he mentioned. Listen, don't be afraid to talk about it, and encourage someone to get help by asking what you can do to help. When we come back, we're going to talk about the next series of steps. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Dr. Mason Turner from Kaiser Permanente on the line. And right before the break, you were giving us some great tips on asking someone what they need you to do to help them. You mentioned that it was very difficult for some people to even have the ability to get from point A to point B to know exactly how to navigate the healthcare system, which even in the best of circumstances might be very difficult. And once you're helping someone with those steps, what is the role of somebody who is a friend or loved one of someone who's now started to access care? What are some of the other things that they can do to even just help them through this time? You mentioned don't be afraid to talk about it. What else can someone do? Well, I think as a friend or a family member as well, it's I think important to ask the person, you know, how can I help you? How do you want me to follow up with you? Um, was this really just one time you wanted to talk with me about your feelings and that was all? Or the things that I can do to help support you in your journey to seek care and to, to get better. It could be simple. Um, hey, I need you to come over and take care of the kids for one hour when I have my therapy appointment. Or it could be something like, you know, can you just take this load off me of making dinner on Wednesday evenings and bring over some food for me? Uh, those kinds of approaches can be really, really helpful for people who feel overwhelmed. And so I think, again, going back and asking the person, hey, what can I do to support you and help you? Do you want me to help you and support you in the future? Or was it really just getting you started that was important? Uh, those can be very important questions to ask. And typically, people will be able to tell you what you might be able to do to help them. Are there any signs or symptoms that would suggest that even if somebody is seeking care, that they might need some extra help beyond that? I mean, do you ever see people who might not be, dare I say, fully honest about what their plans are? How do you know if somebody's really going to going to do something to hurt themselves despite having all the resources available? Yes, and I think you touched on a really important point that your listeners will want to be sure to know about, which is that suicide and even suicide attempts by their very nature are very impulsive. And so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to think about ways to, one, minimize access to means of harming themselves. So that's part of it. 
Um, and I think also just understanding and realizing that sometimes you have to listen uh, a little bit um, in the background to hear what's being said, because sometimes the subtle subtleties of communication around suicidal thoughts can be a little bit difficult to pick up. So I tell friends and family members, listen for a couple things. One, obviously, if the person says they're feeling like harming themselves or they want to die, that's a very clear expression that they need some help. And I think that's really where you can step in and say, how can I help you? You know, do you have a therapist or a psychiatrist you're seeing? How can I help you access care? That kind of thing. But also, uh, other things that you can listen for would be feelings of hopelessness. Someone saying they don't feel like they have any future. They feel like their future is gone, dead, devoid. Those kinds of things can be a sign that, okay, this person's beginning to think about ending their life because they see no future for themselves. Saying things that they feel like they're a burden, that they would be better off, their friends and family would be better off with them uh, being dead, or they'd be better off dead as well. Withdrawal from friends and family is a huge one. We see that a lot with depression. The people who are really actively thinking about suicide withdraw from friends and family. They may give away possessions um, that are very dear to them as a way of remembering them uh, when they die. Those are very concerning symptoms that, that really, I think, are a call for almost immediate action. And then you can also see things like extreme mood swings, um, saying goodbye, writing letters to friends and family members. Those, are, again, are all um, real warning signs that the person either needs to access help or needs more help if they're already getting help. If you see somebody who stops taking care of their own self-care needs, whether it be getting dressed, wearing clean clothes, doing laundry, brushing their hair, their teeth, etc., could that also be a sign that they're kind of withdrawing and sort of letting even personal needs go? Absolutely, and we see that uh, quite a bit with depression sometimes, where people just don't have the energy <clears throat> or the drive to be able to get up and engage in even basic hygiene sometimes. So again, those are, those are real warning signs that they need help and they need to uh, access some care. Have we seen an increase in the rates of suicide or depression and anxiety uh, since the pandemic? Is this something that we actually are, are witnessing numerically in our community, either here in the islands or nationwide? That's a little bit too early to answer that question because um, suicides by their very nature can be difficult to track, and it takes a long time sometimes to determine that a death was a suicide. You know, I will say anecdotally that we know that um, in addition to increased depression uh, and increased anxiety, uh, increased use of, of alcohol and other drugs is also a predictor of suicide as well. If you go back to that idea that I mentioned previously that suicide and suicide attempts are by their very nature impulsive, if I then layer on top of that drugs and alcohol, which reduce our inhibitions, uh, that actually also predicts completed suicides as well. So when we kind of think about those things all in tandem, which we all know are increasing during uh, the times of COVID, we would expect suicide rates to go up as a result of those factors alone, uh, those independent factors. Have we shown that in the data yet? I can't point to a study that shows that yet, but I do think that when we uh, continue to accrue data, we continue to look back on this a few months from now, we will see that suicides have gone up as a result of these conditions getting worse. Well, and it's a very good point that substance abuse can also heighten the situation by losing the inhibitions. And if this is an impulsive act, that certainly can, can lead to some folks finding themselves in circumstances that they might not otherwise have been in if those substances were not involved. I do want to take a moment to reiterate, you mentioned the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So we have that number here. It's 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's one 800 273 
888-528-8255. And the other aspect that you mentioned is that if someone you love expresses some of these thoughts, listen to them first and see what it is that they're saying and see if you can help to find a way to have them understand that they may need some help. But you also mentioned feel comfortable reaching out and don't feel like talking about it is going to increase the chances that it could happen. That's a very important point. Some people are afraid to talk about it because they feel like it'll make it more prominent, but the thought's always there. You mentioned also for people to ask a very simple question, how can you help? And asking that question and then hopefully being able to fulfill whatever those needs are is another way to really encourage those who need help to seek the help that they that they can get so that they can get back to a better state of mental well-being. I want to thank you today for sharing your expertise with us, Dr. Mason Turner from Kaiser Permanente. I really appreciate all the thoughts and great advice that you gave us. We, If you'd like to hear the show again, you can always click on our public radio website, ahawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then. Ooh.